Church, I invite you to draw your sword and turn to Romans chapter 7. This morning I want to read in your hearing verses 14 to 25 as we continue our study of the New Testament letter to the Romans. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 7, I'll begin reading at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work at the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. For the first six chapters of this New Testament letter, Paul has clearly communicated that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. There is only one way for God to save sinners, and that's through explicit faith in the accomplished work of the Messiah. It is only through Jesus that a person can go from death unto life. We are not saved by our own merit. We are not saved by our own works. We are not even saved by our obedience to the law of God. Paul has already stated in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 that no one is declared righteous by observing the law. But rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Elsewhere in his writings in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle says the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. In Romans chapter 10, Paul will say that the end goal of the law is Christ Jesus. You may recall that Jesus, while he was here on earth, said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it at every point. Certainly, the law is a gift from God. There is no other deity in all of antiquity that ever gave his commandments and stipulations to his people outside of the Lord Yahweh himself. The law is a gift that God has given to his people. 
It also clearly describes that God's standard is perfection, that what God demands of us is a perfect life. But the law was never given to us as a means for salvation, for the law has never been able to remove sin. It only reveals sin. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, that we are dead to the law. Now, at first read, it may sound as if the apostle is anti-law, somehow against the Mosaic covenant. And so he anticipates this rebuttal when he comes to chapter 7, verse 7. Is the law sin? Chapter 7, verse 13. Is that which is good now the death of me? In other words, Paul is asking the question, is the law of God sin? Is it a poisonous serum that God has given so that we will die? And the answer is certainly not. May it never be absolutely not. For if the answer is yes, then by default that makes God a sinner and God a murderer. And God is not a sinner and God is not a murderer. So everything he gives to his people is good. And everything that he does is holy and righteous. So that's why Paul says in chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is good, it's holy, it's righteous. The first verse of our passage, chapter 7, verse 14, he says the law is spiritual. So friend, if the law is good and I am bad, if the law is holy and I am unholy, if the law is righteous and I am unrighteous, if the law is spiritual and I am unspiritual, where does the problem lie? The problem does not reside in the law. The culprit is not the law of God, but the culprit is me. The culprit is you. And more specifically, Paul says, the real culprit is indwelling sin in your life and mine. He mentions this sin that dwells within twice in our passage verse 17 and verse 20. The real culprit is the sin in our life. It dwells within us. And Paul says it's that indwelling sin that prompts us to sin. So the law is a good gift. It shows us God's standard, never meant to remove our sin, only meant to reveal our sin, thereby leading us to the reality of the necessity of Jesus Christ. And then Paul gets into this great conversation. Chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. And much ink has been spilt trying to answer the question, who is Paul talking about? Who is the I in this passage? Is it Paul? Is he symbolically representing somebody else? If it is Paul, then is he describing the conflict before Christ or is he describing a inner conflict even for the Christian? Who is Paul talking about? What is he experiencing? What is he talking about? And there have been many answers that have been given. Origen in the third century from Alexandria as he came to Romans chapter 7, he said clearly, Paul is talking about pre-conversion. 
And the reason he's talking about the dilemma that occurs pre-conversion is because the apostle, according to Origen, would never define any disciple as one, as in verse 14, sold as a slavery to sin. Origen said, Paul has already specified in chapter 6, verse 2, that we died to sin. It no longer has power and sway over us. Sin is dead to us. Uh, Our sin is dead to us, and we are dead to our sin. So we have mortified it. We've killed it in Christ. So how can we still be a slave to sin? Origen said, this is Paul before he became a Christian. John R.W. Stott read the very same passage. And John Stott said, well, I think this could be a believer. It may not be Paul as the believer. It probably is a believer who is unhealthy. Somebody may be representing many individuals in the first century in the Roman church. Those who, according to John R.W. Stott, are Old Testament Christians. Believers, but somehow they're relying on their obedience to the law even more than Christ's obedience to the law. And so Stott concludes that uh, Paul is probably describing a believer, but that believer is extremely unhealthy. It's someone who does not know fully what Christ has done in their life. Then you come to a theologian like Charles Cranfield. Charles Cranfield wrote, the words of Romans 7, Describe the inner conflict of every true believer. And it gives evidence that the Holy Spirit is active in that person's life. Now, friend, I just gave you three examples from all uh, ends of the spectrum. Origen said this clearly is a non-Christian. Stott said it could be a believer, but it's an unhealthy believer, and it's not normative in the Christian experience. Cranfield comes along and says, this is evidence that the Holy Spirit's working inside the person because it's an inner conflict for every true believer. So friend, which one is it? Who is Paul talking to? Who is he talking about? Like I said, there's been a great deal of debate. And this morning, I want to try to answer that question for you. And I want you to know up front, I hold my conclusion loosely, but I hold it nonetheless. It's a conclusion that I believe to be true. But I hold it rather loosely because I know there are great individuals who believe the Bible and and believe in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ that come down on different angles of this interpretation. So let me just come right out and tell you that I believe that Paul is describing a Christian experience. I agree more with Cranfield who says that when you walk through this passage and the apostle is having this inner conversation where he's saying to himself, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Friend, I think this is a transparent passage where Paul is pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see that even for the truest of believers, there is an inner conflict. There is an inner struggle. There's something about this that passes the experience test, doesn't it? For Christian, let me ask you, even though you have been bought by the sacrificial blood of Christ, and even though you have declared that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, 
And even though you know that Jesus is your Savior, and even though you know that your sin is dead, it's dead to you, and you are dead to it, even though you know this to be true, Christian, are there ever times when sin rears its ugly head in your life? Ever experiences when you still are gripped by greed? Ever been moments, beloved, when you, you, you know what it is to be entangled in pride? You know that your selfishness was nailed to the cross, but still there are times when your responses can only be described as selfish. Beloved, have there been moments when you still fall prey to a quick temper? Maybe it's the lust of the eyes that occasionally trip you up. Maybe it's a vindictive tongue, a word of gossip, and you know you shouldn't have said it, and once you said it, you don't know why you said it. Maybe there are moments in your life when sin rears its ugly head. I think that for far too many of us, this is normative practice. We are in Christ, but we don't understand why we do what we do. We are in Christ, and yet there are moments when what we want to do, we do not do. And what we hate, that's what we keep on doing. We have a desire to do what is right, to do what is good. But right beside us is an evil desire that somehow, sometimes, it wins. And we ask ourselves, why is this? Why is this inner conflict? Why is this battle? It's a battle that that we rarely talk about with each other. But we know it's still true. We rarely would admit it to a brother or a sister a family member, or even a friend. We would rarely admit the struggle that we have, the, the, inner, the inner conflict that resides within us. But I think that Paul, in full transparency, is saying this is something that happens for far too many believers. Now, why is that? Well, we made reference to this a couple of weeks ago. I think that sometimes we fail to live under the power of Christ Christian, don't you know that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that has saved you and empowers you and walks with you each and every day? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that dead body began to breathe again, that same spirit that breathed life into Jesus again is the same spirit that has breathed life into you and gives you power to say yes to the, yes to the Lord and no to the world. Sometimes, friend, I think that we fail to live under the power of Christ. I think sometimes we fail to live under the word of Christ. It is James, the brother of our Lord, who says, this word has been planted in you and it is able to save you. There are more than a few of us who know the power of a scrap of scripture. We know what it is to cling to maybe just a scrap of scripture and it sustains us through a temptation so we can say yes to the Savior and no to sin. There's more than a few of us who understand the power of the scripture of God. And sometimes the reason we have this inner conflict, and sometimes the reason that we fail is simply because we fail to live under the word of Christ. I think also there are times that we fail because we don't live under the grace of Christ. Instead of putting on the grace clothes, we put on grave clothes. And yet we need to remember what Jesus said to Lazarus for what he said to Lazarus, he says to you, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
He was dead, now he's alive. She was dead, now she's alive. And Jesus says, take off the foul stench of death in your life. Take off the grave clothes. Put on the grace clothes of the Lord Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, Paul had already told us that we are dead to our sin and alive to God. So whenever sin rears its ugly head, and sometimes it does, we preach that sin. Jesus escorted our sin to the grave, and we need to tell our sin, stay there. That's where you deserve to stay, not in my life, but in the grave. In Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, the apostle had already told us that we have new ownership. We are no longer a slave to sin. We're a slave to God. That real freedom is slavery to God. That if we really want to be set free, we've got to be bondservants to Jesus. And when we're bound in Jesus, that's the only place where freedom is found. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, sometimes, beloved, I think that we fail in this inner struggle, this inner conflict, because we don't live under the power of Christ or the word of Christ or the grace of Christ. Sometimes we fail to remember that Jesus is now our master. He's the one who calls the shots and we simply obey him instead of obeying our sin. But even with all that being said, are there times in your life when you wonder, why did I just do that? Why did I just think that? Why did I just say that? Have there ever been moments when you've had this inner conflict, a struggle between that which you want to do versus that which you don't want to do and what you actually do tends to be what you don't want to do? Anybody know that struggle? I've been walking with Jesus now for the better part of 39 years. It's hard to believe. And in all sincerity, in full honesty, I can tell you this morning that even though I've been walking with Jesus for 39 years, I am not all that impressed with Davin Watkins. I'm not. I'm not that impressed with me. I would think that after walking with Jesus for 39 years, I would have some things down. But sometimes those things which I think I should have down, they sometimes get me down. And I wonder, why is that? I am not all that impressed with me. I wonder if you're impressed with you. <laughs> I just got to be honest this morning. I'm not all that impressed with Davin Watkins. The reason is I don't think I've ever done anything purely good. Because like you, I am touched and tainted by sin. Yes, forgiven, but still touched and tainted by sin. And I think that everything that I do and everything that you do is smeared with a mixed bag of motives. Sometimes we have good motives that are right alongside evil motives. Sometimes we have noble thoughts right alongside nasty thoughts. Sometimes um, we, we want to do selfless acts, and right beside that is a selfish act. And I think that most of our actions are a mixed hodgepodge bag smeared with all types of motives. I think that's why Isaiah said that even our best efforts, our best works, are filthy rags before the Lord. I'm not all that impressed with me. Are you all that impressed with you? 
Now, as you read this passage, do not walk away from here thinking that Paul is just saying that we just have to make peace with our sin. We just have to kind of shrug our shoulders and say there's not a whole lot we can do about it because it's just going to rear its ugly head from time to time. No, Paul is not saying make peace with your sin. He's saying make war with your sin. He is not saying that you just can't help it, that, that it's just who you are, and it's just, you know, to, to, to be human is to be flawed, and uh, to err is human, and, and you're just going to have to go along and get along. No, Paul is not saying that we're to make peace with our sin. He's saying we're to make war with our sin. Remember what John Piper said. Piper said the dominant theme of Calvary is not one of defeat. The dominant theme of Calvary is one of victory. The dominant theme of this passage is not one of defeat. The dominant theme of this passage is one of victory. So here, Paul tells us how we can have victory even in the midst of the inner conflict and struggle that could reside in true believers. I think that Paul says three things that give evidence that uh, this is the talk of a Christian and it's something that not only he writes, but I think you and I need to repeat. First is this. Paul says, I hate what I just did. Look with me again at verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Drop down to verse 19. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Friend, have you ever said to yourself after thinking something, saying something, doing something, I hate what I just did? I think that ought to be the heartbeat of every Christian. When every Christian commits a sin, the immediate response ought to be, I, I hate what I just did. This is not the language of a non-Christian. A non-Christian enjoys his sin. A non-Christian tolerates her sin. But a non-Christian never says, I hate what I just did. If you say, and you really mean it, I hate what I just did, that is some evidence, according to Cranfield, that the Spirit of God is working inside of you. That the Spirit of God is active in your being. For you to say, I hate what I just did. Lord, I'm sorry for what I did. Lord, please help me to turn from that and never to do it again. Friend, if you get to the point where you hate your sin, that's a good spot to be. Later, the apostle will say in Romans chapter 12, to love God is to hate evil. To hate evil is to love God. When you and I get to the point where we hate our sin, notice I did not say to hate somebody else's sin. That's easy to do. It is so easy for me to hate y'all's sin. It is so easy for me to hate the sin that other people do. But what I'm asking this morning is, does your sin cause your skin to crawl? Does your sin cause your skin to crawl? Where you're to the point where you say, I hate what I just did. You show me a person who says that sincerely, I'll show you a person who is striving to love the Lord. The second thing Paul says is, I, I love God's word. Look with me in verse 22. For my 
in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. That word delight means to love supremely. This is not the language of a non-believer. A non-believer does not say, I love God's word supremely. A non-believer is either indifferent to the word of God or hostile to the word of God. Only a believer will say, I delight myself in God's word. I delight in God. I delight in his word. In Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Later, the psalmist says, I will not neglect your word. As the Lord said to Ezekiel, so he says to us, eat this scroll, devour the scripture so that it will sustain you. Devour it so that you can meditate upon it, for it will strengthen you. And the the person who loves the Lord says, I love God's word. Once again, you show me a person who says, I love God's word. And And it's evident in their life. I mean, they actually read it. They actually study it. They memorize it. And in those moments of need, it comes back to them and they regurgitate it. A person who loves God's word, not just with lip but lifestyle. One who loves God's word, not just in talk but also in walk. You show me somebody who loves the word of God supremely. I'll show you somebody who loves the Lord. See, this is the language of a believer. It's not the language of a non-believer. This morning I wonder, uh, how much do you love God's word? Oh, we love a lot of things. I mean, we love our family, we love our children, we love our grandchildren, we love our spouse, we love our grandparents. We love our vacations, we love our 401k plans, we, we love our finances, we wish we had some more of it, but we still love what we have. Uh, we love the vacations that we've planned, we, we love the goals and the dreams that we have, we love the house that we live in, we love our sports, we love our football, and yes, some of us even love basketball, we love a whole lot of things. But where in the pecking order does the word of God reside? How much do you love God's word? And I'm not just saying you give lip service to it, but it actually works its way through your hands and habits. Paul says, I I love God's word. I, I delight in it. That's the language of a believer. The third statement Paul makes, he says, I am a wretched man. Look at verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Once again, this is not the language of a non-believer. A non-believer says, I'm not that bad. I'm really better than most. I'm as good as you are. Only a believer will say, I am a wretched man. Why are we wretched? Because of indwelling sin. Why are we so despicable? Why are we so wretched? It's because of indwelling sin that the reformers and the Puritans said, we've got to mortify, we've got to kill, we've got to slaughter, we've got to slay. We've got to do this on an active basis, on a continual basis. The apostle Paul will write to his son of the ministry, Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I mean, Paul is telling his son Timothy in the ministry, I'm wretched. I'm a wretched sinner. Let me also be transparent with you. I am the worst sinner that I know. And the reason is because I know all my sin. 
I don't know all your sin. I mean, if you told me all your sin, maybe you would be the worst sinner I know. No, I'm just joking. I am the worst sinner that I know. Even if you were to tell me all the things that you have done, I would still say, listen, Jesus came to save wretched sinners of whom I am chief. I am the worst. That's, that's, not, just, that's not just preacher talk. That's not just false piety. No, that's sincere. Paul says, I am a wretch. I am a wreck. I am messed up. I am completely and utterly sinful. You'd show me somebody who says, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched woman I am. I'll show you a man or woman who knows who they are before God and is pleading for the grace of the Lord. We need to see ourselves for who we are, beloved. We are wretched. We're not born good. We're not born with a blank slate. We're not innately noble. We are sinful. We are completely, utterly tainted and touched by sin. There is nothing good inside of us. That is our sinful nature. There is nothing good inside of us. We are completely and utterly wretched. You say, but preacher, do you really want us to think of ourselves as wretched individuals? Yeah. I want you to think of yourself, wretched Davin, wretched Randy, wretched Emily, wretched Sally, wretched Sue, wretched Jeff. Yeah, I want you to see yourself as a wretch, because I'll tell you this much, I would much rather be the pastor of a wretched church than a plastic church. Because you know what it is to be part of a plastic church, don't you? Where everybody knows how to, how to slap on a fake smile on their face and answer every question with pious pleasantries. And the plastic church gives off the impression that the worst thing in my life is whether I'm going to eat two Krispy Kreme donuts or three Krispy Kreme donuts. And friends, can I tell you that my disobedience goes far deeper than donuts? And so does yours. Our disobedience is real. It's legitimate. We, we still wrestle with sin. Yes, we are dead to our sin. Our sin is dead to us. But we live in the overlap. We live in this world where our sin is dead, but it's not extinct. We're going to the place of no more sin and no more sadness and no more sickness. But we live in the world with some more uh, sin and some more sickness and some more sadness. We live in the overlap. We struggle with this real inner conflict of wondering, why did I do what I just did? I don't understand it, Paul writes. For what I want to do, I do not do. And that which I do not want to do, what I hate, is what I keep on doing. What a wretched man that I am. When you and I begin to repeat these phrases, it gives evidence that we truly are born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. For only a believer would say, I hate the sin that I just did. Only a believer would say, I delight and love supremely the word of God. Only a believer would say that in my own sinful nature, I am wretched. So who will rescue me from this body of sin? I find the question intriguing and interesting. Who is going to rescue me? Not what. 
Not what is going to rescue me. Not what do I have to do to be rescued. Not what do I have to say. Not what hocus pocus do I have to perform. No, he says, who is going to rescue me from this body of sin? He knows that his only hope is something outside of himself. So who is going to rescue me from this body, this makeup, all these members of complete sin and death? Who is going to rescue this wretched man that stands in front of you? And who Who's going to rescue the wretched people to which I stared this morning? Who is going to rescue us from this wretched body of sin and death? And the answer is so succinct, but so powerful. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You get the impression that Paul could have exploded in his pen and, and written a chapter after chapter after chapter, but it's so succinct and so powerful that the only thing he could say, the only thing he could write, the only thing he could muster was, thank you, God. You know, sometimes that's the only appropriate response that we should have. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Because my answer is found through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We oftentimes say that everything you need can be found in Jesus. Sometimes we say that rather flippantly around the church. Well, everything you need, you can find it in Jesus. And people say, yeah, but, but what about other things? What about this or that? Or th-? Listen, everything you need, you can find in Jesus. Your deliverance, your redemption, your forgiveness of sin, your peace in this world, your home in heaven, everything can be found in Jesus. And it's in Jesus and Jesus alone. Only Jesus can supply, and Jesus supplies sufficiently. So Paul just simply says, thanks be to God for Jesus, because in Jesus we have redemption from sin. In Jesus I have the deliverance from this old sinful body. In Jesus I have the power to say yes to God and no to the world. In Jesus I have everything that I need. I am not walking uh, a theme of defeatism. No, this is a theme of victory because our victory is found in Christ and Christ alone. And in him we have everything that we need. So friend, I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning and his precious blood atoning. And I repented of my sin and I won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him and all my love is doing. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. Friend, that's not just a song. That is my motto. That's not just a lyric. That is my life. In Jesus, I have victory. In Jesus, you have victory. In Jesus, we have all that we need. To God be the glory. This morning, I wonder, is there anyone here in need of the salvation that only God can give in Jesus Christ? Today, admit to God that you're a sinner. Not just a sinner, but you're a wretched sinner. Admit to God that you're selfish and self-absorbed. Admit to God that you've made mistakes. 
Admit to God that you cannot save yourself. There's no way you can earn salvation. Admit to God that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is the God-man who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth to secure your salvation both now and forevermore. And Jesus was nailed to the cross and so were your sins. And Jesus escorted your sins to the grave and left them there. For on the third day, he rose from the dead. And I want you to confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the one who possesses everything that you need. Friend, if if you do those things this morning, then you go from death unto life. You go from no faith to faith. You go from defeat to victory. This victory is made possible in Jesus Christ. If you do not have a personal, growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, today can be the day that it starts for you. I look across the crowd And I see many people that are believers. You're already in the fold. You're already part of the flock. But I wonder, in full transparency, is this struggle your struggle? Can you identify with Paul as he writes in chapter 7, verses 14 to 25? Do you sometimes question, listen, I don't understand what I do. I mean, what I want to do, I don't. And the evil that I I don't want to do seems that I keep on doing it on a somewhat regular basis. What a wretched person I am. Christian, if if, if you can relate to this struggle this morning, I, I just invite you to come and cast all your cares and all your sin and all your worry at the feet of Christ. Remember what Piper said, the dominant theme of Calvary and this passage is not defeat. The dominant theme is victory. You and I ought to walk out in victory, not because of who we are, but because of our dependency upon Jesus. So I wonder, believer, if you simply need to come and pray, once again ask for forgiveness, and once again ask for the help of Christ in your life. If you're here today and you're looking for a church home, this might be the right spot for you. And if the Spirit of God is prompting, then you respond in obedience. Whatever it is that God wants you to do in this moment that we call invitation, which is so serious, in this moment, whatever business the Spirit of God brings to your mind, follow through in faith. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. We pray that we will be people who love you and trust you and lean upon you. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are and for what you've done. And today we declare we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.